Good morning, I'm Pastor Gillespie from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church and School, Sherman Center, Random Lake, Wisconsin. It's good to have you with us here this Saturday morning for the Congregation of Prayer, a guide for daily meditation and prayer around God's Word. Um, Saturday, September 2nd, 2023. Those of you who uh, watched the video, you heard leading up to here a setting of Let Us Ever Walk with Jesus by um, Benjamin Cully, who was a classmate of mine from undergraduate, played in Wind Symphony with me, um, and works f- that was published by Concordia Publishing House. I think he's a pub- he works full-time as an editor for hmm, a publisher in Milwaukee. I can't remember the name of it. So, nearby, too. Uh, yeah, and I agree. Did an excellent job with that. Let's see. What we do on Saturdays for our Congregation of Prayer is we, of course, have our um, weekly things that we've been praying and confessing and singing all week. Um, but I do also then look for our readings to tomorrow's Old Testament and Epistle reading and try to bring some context or a doctrinal uh, background or maybe how it affects our confession of faith, these sorts of things, and then maybe even how it relates um, to the gospel text for tomorrow, which is uh, the quite familiar um, text about the Good Samaritan, the Good Samaritan. All right. So, let us begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right. Prayer Psalm for the week, Psalm 93. The Lord reigns, he is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed, he has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established, it shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old, you are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord, the floods have lifted up their voice, the floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Glory be to the Father and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Okay. And then our memory verse for the week. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. 1 John 3, verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. 1 John 3, verse 2. All right, our catechism for the week is the Lord's Prayer, the introduction. Our Father, who art in heaven, what does this mean? With these words, God tenderly invites us to believe that he is our true Father and that we are his true children, so that with all boldness and confidence we may ask him, as dear children ask their dear father. First petition, hallowed be thy name. What does this mean? 
God's name is certainly holy in itself, but we pray in this petition that it may be kept holy among us also. How is God's name kept holy? God's name is kept holy when the word of God is taught in its truth and purity, and we as the children of God also lead holy lives according to it. Help us to do this, dear Father in heaven. But anyone who teaches or lives contrary to God's word profanes the name of God among us. Protect us from this, Heavenly Father. All right. So we'll continue uh, or consider tomorrow's readings. First, we'll look at um, the appointed epistle for tomorrow, which is from Galatians chapter 3. And then uh, I'm going to share with you some of Luther's commentary on this text, Luther's uh, great Galatians commentary. Um, He has a lesser, which is shorter, and earlier in his ministry. The great um, commentary is, I I would say, at his prime, uh, 1535. So, And you'll find it quite... uh, intelligible and not uh, not difficult at all. He writes, he writes for, for the common man, or in this case, lectured for the common man. All right, but first let's read it. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men. Though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. All right, this is an essential text for us to understand uh, what we would call the proper distinction of law and gospel. And it's not only distinguishing is this text law or is this text gospel, but also what, what purpose does the law have and what purpose does the gospel have, right? Um, the gospel, the promise, right? That's the synonym for gospel here. The gospel um, is, of course, given by faith in Jesus Christ um, to those who believe. It comes not by uh, right or by obligation or by what, how else might something come? Um, by law, right? Um, but actually... Um, it is given as a gift. And uh, how many times, you know, you've seen this in in television shows and motion pictures, right? When the will is read and you're like, that's not fair. I deserve or I should have, a, you know, as the eldest son, I should have a fair share. Um, and it's like, no, actually, um, a will and testament is a promise. And it doesn't actually, it actually is binding, not because um, it follows all the rules of culture or whatnot, but simply because it is. All right. Um, so that's the first point, and uh, Paul then here rightly confesses, well, of course rightly, it's it's inspired word of God, um, the purpose of the law. Uh, usually when you hear the laws uh, articulated, probably from the catechism, um, you've heard that it has um, three uses, three uses. Um, the first being the civil or political use, the second being um, the theological use, the accusing use, right? It shows us our sin, and then it... Um, often articulated with a third use, which is the pedagogical use or the instructive use. 
um, which um, the best way I think I can explain the third use is it's the way that the law then is used by the new man in Christ who who lives by faith in the promise um, to restrain the old Adam, to, um, the f- sinful flesh. So tells the, the the new man, then this is this internal dialogue that Paul talks about here, both in Galatians and Romans in particular, um, the new man is is constantly telling the flesh how to cut it out, right? Showing the flesh what it should do. And of course, um, the gift or the, or the ability to overcome sin is actually only going to come by faith and through the righteousness of Christ given by faith and God working through your baptism, the Spirit working through your baptism in particular. All right. So why add the law? All right. This is the question. If, if one cannot be saved by the law, by the doing of um, anything, right, even good things, then why add that? And Paul is very careful here to tell you exactly why. Because of, what's he say? The law was added because of transgressions, verse 19. Until when? Till the seed should come, who is Christ, to whom the promise was made. So this is, um, elsewhere he calls the law a tutor or a pedagogue. Again, until the seed should come, until the promise is fulfilled. So uh, this is one of the more challenging things to hear, is that um, the law meaning the books of Moses, broadly speaking, the Old Testament, even more broadly speaking, um, the Old Testament, if you like, um, or even the, the more particular laws. Um, this is quite apparent in the Levitical laws that those are done away with in, um, in Christ, right? No need to sacrifice on, on altars, body and blood of animals, bulls, goats, etc., or offering up bread or um, regular petitions um, according to well, the mandates of Leviticus. No, those have been set aside in Christ. Christ has fulfilled them. All right? Um, so that's quite obvious. Um, but how about something like the Ten Commandments? <laughs> well, this is where it gets a little bit more challenging, right? Because it's like, well, we learned the commandments, but why would we learn the commandments? Now that Christ has come, what need do we have of command? Now that we have the promise, right? Well, um, he says, is the law then against the promises of God? Right? Do we set these two opposed to each other? No, but the law is given not to give us life or righteousness, but rather to confine the sinful man, all things, under sin, right? So that work of continuing to show us our sin uh, is maintained to this day. And even the way that the new Adam, the new flesh, the new man, um, uses the law then um, to discipline the, the sinful flesh. That will persist until um, our resurrection. Well, ultimately, actually, till our death. And uh, yeah. So here's what Luther has to say, and, and that background hopefully will help you understand what he's getting after here. All right, so this is from his uh, lecture number 22 on Saturday, September 19th in uh, 1535. Ah, September 19th, it's September 2nd. All right, so pretty close to today. On a Saturday, too. Look at that. You're right, or he, uh, he said, and these are lecture notes, um, these were transcribed by his students. So. So just as there is variety and distinction in all things, so their use is also varied and different. These functions should not be mixed together, otherwise the result is confusion. The woman may not use man's clothing, and a man may not use woman's garb. Huh. Let men do the things corresponding to men, and women those that corresponding correspond to women. Well, this is controversial today. Let everyone do what is required of their profession and labor. Let pastors and preachers teach God's word with purity. Let magistrates govern their subjects and subjects... The subjects obey their magistrates, let each thing serve its own and proper place. Let the sun shine during daytime and the moon and the stars by night. Let the fish surge from the sea and the grain from the earth, wild beasts from the forests and trees, etc. In the same way, let not the law 
usurp the function and use of justification. Let it leave that alone for grace, the promise, and faith. So, let not the law usurp the function and use of justification. Instead, leave it, let it leave that alone, justification, for grace, the promise, and faith. So what then is the function of the law? Transgressions, right? Quite clear here from Paul. That's what he said also in another text. The law, he said, the law entered so that sin might increase. So we say, what a delightful function, right? <laughs> That's sarcasm, or using irony. They, they translated all this away in the, in, uh, the older translation. Um, I really do prefer the one here by Geraldo Camacho, published by 1517, because um, he leaves all of the, the, the irony and sarcasm in there, right? So that's a delightful function, that sin might increase. The law, he said, was added because of transgressions. That is, it was added apart from and after the promise until Christ the seed should come to whom it is promised. Here you should understand the double use of the law. Right? We talked about three uses. Luther doesn't really have those, although he doesn't disagree with it, I think, in, uh, in principle. It's articul- the third use is articulated in the formula of Concord, for example, um, after his death. Here you should understand the double use of the law. One is the civil use, the first use. God has ordained all civil law, all laws to punish crimes. Every law is given to prevent sin. But if it can prevent sin, doesn't it then justify? Ergo, justificat. Yeah. No, not in the least. When I don't kill, I don't commit adultery, I don't steal or desist from committing other sins, it's not because I do it willingly or because I'm in love with virtue. Rather, it's because I fear getting locked up in jail, the sword, or hanging on the executioner's noose. These regulations act like a bridle on me and hold me back from sinning, just as the chains hold back the lion or the bear so that it won't destroy and devour everything in its path. Thus, to abstain from sinning is not righteousness, rather it is a sign of unrighteousness. Because just as the bear or rabid beast must be chained, so also the law acts as a bridle on those who give free rein to their lusts, to keep them from sinning. But this bridle clearly shows that those who need the law, everyone without Christ, are not righteous. Instead, they are wicked and brazen, they must be held back with shackles and prison, so they won't sin. Thus the law does not justify. All right, so here are both civil law. I would even say in the home, the reason why you have rules in your home, uh, those of you with children or have had children, right? you know, well, we were all children at some point, that those rules were given not because we were righteous, but because we were unrighteous, right? Um, to keep us from sinning, both against our parents and against one another. So that was the purpose, right? Not to make us righteous. They certainly can't do that, but to, to keep us from even exceeding unrighteousness. Therefore, we must understand that the first use of the law is to bridle the wicked, for the devil reigns over the world and compels all to commit all kinds of horrifying wickedness. Therefore, God has ordained magistrates, parents, ministers, laws, shackles, and all kinds of civil regulations to at least bind the devil's hands, if nothing more. That's so the devil won't wander about in his captives, satisfying the madness of his lusts. The demon possessed, in whom the devil reigns powerfully, must be bound with straitjackets and chains, lest they hurt others. You see that actually in the Gospels, right? It's the same with the world. It's possessed by the devil. It goes headlong into all kinds of wickedness. That is why the magistrate comes with his shackles and handcuffs, his laws, bind hand and foot. Otherwise, many people would lunge into all kinds of barbaric acts. Whoever can't tolerate this bridle then goes out of his mind. This bridle of civil law is a must and is ordained by God to preserve the peace of the land. All right? So the idea that we could live apart from a law um, 
is nonsense. Of course, then the question is, uh, by magistrate, what does he mean? Does he mean federal law? Does he mean state law? Does he mean re local, regional law? Right? Um, and our, my argument, and the argument of many of the reformers, is that the best law is the local law. So the, the parents, the community, right? And the farther you get away from, from parents, the farther you get away from the home, um, the less effective law is going to be, right? And actually, the more easily it's, um, it's ignored or nullified. All right, there's a question in the chat that I provide you a link to this. So let me go pull that up. Books, uh, how do I search? There, Galatians, there it is. Luther's Commentary on Galatians. All right, so I'll link to the paperback, but of course you can get it in hardcover. Um, there's actually a Kindle version too, I believe. But you have to go search for that on Amazon. Um, I just have the, the paperback, but it's available in hardcover now too. So that's nice. All right. Yeah, you can download it as an ebook as well. You can search for it on the site there. All right. Where was I? The bridle of civil law is a must and is ordained by God to preserve the peace of the land. But its special purpose, here's the key, is to protect the spread of the gospel so that the tumult and treachery of the wicked, the savage, and the proud won't hinder its course. But here, Paul is not advocating in favor of this use and function of the civil law. All right, so Luther's arguing that that's true, um, and that the chief use of the civil law is actually to protect the preaching of the gospel, um, which uh, our country used to understand, right, in not um, forbidding the public assembly. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, that's not always true. Has been true, or not always been true in the recent years, uh, or the public confession of faith as well. All right, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. All right. It's indeed, it is true that it is indeed necessary, the civil law, but it does not justify. The demon possessed or those deranged are not free from the shackles of the devil, neither do they enjoy mental health just because they are bound hand and foot and cannot damage anything. In the same way, even though the law is bridal and bind the world from wickedness and atrocities, even so, the world will not be righteous, for it will continue to be wicked. Right? They'll just be restrained, but still wicked. It doesn't change the character of the person. The bridle itself clearly demonstrates that the entire world is perverse and savage, incited and driven to all kinds of wickedness by its prince, the devil. Otherwise, it would need the, not need the bridle of the law to keep on sinning. Right? So this is uh, why I've been pointing out here recently the fallacy of you know, kind of talking people out of their sin. Uh, no, what they need is they need to be forgiven. They actually need uh, to be commended to their baptism. Um, it's a, the word of forgiveness, um, the gift of their baptism that actually changes their heart, that creates in them a clean heart. They don't, they can't do that. They can't change their mind. The Lord has to do that, All right? So just uh, making laws more severe or helping people understand the rules, um, especially children, it doesn't make them righteous. It only just restrain. It puts some restraints on them or constraints, right? What they actually need is a change of heart. Uh, Luther's going to go to there next. Another use of the law is divine and spiritual, as Paul put it. It is that sin might abound. In other words, to show man his sin, blindness, misery, wickedness, ignorance, hate, disregard for God, death, hell, judgment, and well-deserved wrath of God. Right. So that's called the theological use or the divine or spiritual use. To show man his sin, blindness, misery, wickedness, ignorance, hate, disregard for God, death, hell, judgment, and well-deserved wrath of God. The apostle urges this use of the law, especially in Romans 7. We talked about that on the Banned Books podcast yesterday at the very end. So you have to make it a couple hours in. <laughs> This is a totally unknown use to the hypocrites, the papal philosophers and scholarly theologians, and all those who walk in the opinion of the righteousness of the law or their own righteousness. 
God has to bridle and knock down this monster, the wild beast, which is nothing more than the presumptuous, presumptuous opinion of human righteousness with its religion, or also known as the opinio leges, the opinion of the law. Presumptuous opinion of human righteousness with its religion. This belief naturally fills men up with pride and puffs them up so that they think they themselves can greatly please God. Thus it was necessary for God to send some Hercules that could defeat this monster using great strength and courage to defeat it and destroy it altogether, or so they think. In other words, God was compelled to give the law on Mount Sinai with great majesty and terrifying demonstration of power so that the great multitude was struck with terror, Exodus 19.20. This is the main and proper use of the law. It is very beneficial and supremely necessary. That is because anyone who is not a murderer, adulterer, thief, and to all appearances abstains from sin, as the Pharisee mentioned in the gospel, would swear up and down that he is righteous, since he is devil-possessed. Thus he is cherishing the opinion of his own righteousness and boasting of his own good works and merits. God has no other way to bring these individuals down to size except only through the law, for it is the hammer of death, the thunder from hell, and the lightning from God's wrath that grinds into powder all stubborn and foolish hypocrites. So he's not talking... He's saying the theological use is necessary for those who think themselves righteous apart um, from faith in God, mm. or from the promise. Thus it is the proper and true use of the law, through lightning storms and the sound of Sinai's trumpet that terrifies, and though and through its thunder knocks down and tears into pieces that beast called the opinion of self-righteousness. Thus God said through the prophet Jeremiah, My word is like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. Jeremiah 23, 29. For as long as the opinion of self-righteousness remains in man, there will remain in him an incomprehensible pride, presumptuousness, arrogance, hate toward God, disregard for grace and mercy, and ignorance of the promises of Christ. The preaching of the free remission of sins through Christ cannot enter the heart of such an individual. He will always resist it. Neither can he taste it as long as he cherishes that huge rock and immovable boulder of self-righteousness that is that has him cornered and won't let him out. All right, and it keeps going on this horrible beast of self-righteousness. Uh, it's quite the, quite the image, isn't it? And then having uh, Hercules going to the, the myth. Uh, more on Sinai, more on Sinai, more on Sinai. Yeah, this is lecture. Luther just, he just goes after it, right? Oh, and then he comes back to verse 19 again, <laughs> according to the header. All right. When does he get? Oh, until the seed comes, right? So that's where, that would, would not be until the following lecture, Friday, September 25th. So the next week on Friday. All right. Uh, but I'll spare you. So great work. Very devotional, actually. Uh, if you want to read through Galatians with Luther, what I would advocate you do. Um, and this is a great way to do it because they're lectures. And you can just read a lecture at a time. Although the lectures, I think, would usually be like two hours. So it might take you a little bit to get through a lecture. Something like that. All right. Now, this, this does pertain to tomorrow because um, the opinion of the law or self-righteousness is what actually deters um, the priests and the Pharisee from actually caring uh, for for the man um, who has been left behind wounded in the ditch. All right, they're presuming that they they need not love their neighbor, right, or that loving their neighbor would somehow be unrighteous, right? And uh, they're completely wrong because uh, love is the fulfillment of the law. So if they want to be righteous, that is, uh, to be saved, uh, they actually it requires faith in Christ, and faith in Christ, of course, sees the neighbor as the object of God's love, as someone whom Christ has also died for. Right, so they let their religiosity get in the way of the one in need. 
um, as we often do too. And we'll talk about how that might be true for you. Okay. Um, and then uh, tomorrow we're going to hear about the, the good Samaritan, right? And he's kind of the guy that we least expect to actually care for the man in the ditch because the Samaritans were off, uh, were kind of a half breed and, uh, have been commingled with um, Baal worship under Ahaz, right? And uh, we'll hear something about that, uh, some of the background behind the attitudes towards the Samaritans. I'm um, here from Second Chronicles chapter 28, our Old Testament text. And the children of Israel carried away captive of their brethren 200,000 men or women, sons and daughters, and they also took away much spoil from them and brought the spoil to Samaria. But a prophet of the Lord was there whose name was Oded, And he went out before the army that came to Samaria and said to them, Look, because the Lord God of your fathers was angry with Judah, he has delivered them into your hand. But you have killed them in a rage that reaches up to heaven. And now you propose to force the children of Judah and Jerusalem to be your male and female slaves. But are you not also guilty before the Lord your God? Now hear me therefore and return the captives whom you have taken captive from your brethren, for the fierce wrath of the Lord is upon you. Then some of the heads of the children of Ephraim, Azariah the son of Johanan, Berechiah the son of Meshillamoth, Jehezekiah the son of Shalom, and also Amasa the son of Hadlai, stood up against those who came from the war, and said to them, You shall not bring the captives here, for we already have offended the Lord. Uh, you intend to add to our sins and to our guilt, for our guilt is great, and there is fierce wrath against Israel. So, the armed men left the captives and the spoil before the leaders and all the assembly. Then the men who were designated by name rose up and took the captives, and from the spoil they clothed all who were naked among them, dressed them, and gave them sandals, gave them food and drink, and anointed them, and they let all the feeble ones ride on donkeys. So they brought them to their brethren at Jericho, the city of palm trees. Then they returned to Samaria. All right, so uh, the Lord has used those in Samaria, that would be Ahaz, the kings of the north, the king of the north, um, to, under Assyrian captivity, by the way, or captive, captivity, captive rule, um, to go and conquer Ju- some of Judah and Jerusalem, and uh, to bring them, call them to repentance, that they too to not fall into, uh, well, into captivity, but ultimately they do with the Babylonians, right? And uh, so here, there's this indication, maybe a few things going on, um, is that they're brethren. So these are your brothers. Um, even though the North, the Samaritans, have long since uh, rebelled and left the fold, so to speak, um, they, so they don't consider Judah and Jerusalem their brethren. And I don't think Judah and Jerusalem consider the North their brethren either, as we see certainly at the time of Jesus. And yet they are brothers. Why? Um, because they have common ancestry from from Jacob, right? And, of course, the common ancestry, according to Jacob, or even farther back with Abraham, or in, and also with Isaac, is not um, a blood ancestry, although that's true too, uh, even though Samaria has long since intermarried um, with the, uh, well, the people that were supposed to be destroyed, like Tyre and Sidon, the king of, Sido- of the Sidonians, uh, Baal, what was his name? Eth Baal. Uh, his daughter, of course, married the king of the north, Ahaz, uh, and she was Jezebel. And that's only just one little example of, of the, the great mixture of unbelief and belief of, of those families. And yet, uh, God still considers them, uh, they, that they should consider one another brothers, not because of law or obligation or duty or bloodline, but rather by the promise. Remember, the promise was given 
to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham was called from Ur of the Chaldeans. He was, quite literally, there was no such thing as an Israelite or a Hebrew, right? He was a Gentile, if you like, although that's a term from later on. And actually, all, all of these people will be called to repentance and faith in Christ, uh, regardless of their background. We see that in the ministry of Jesus, um, with the Canaanite woman, for example, or the uh, Syrophoenician, if you prefer. Would be a great example, or the way that Jesus ministered to the people in the Decapolis who are um, outside of the north, or or to Samaritans, right? Um, never mind the sick and the poor and, and whatnot, right? But all the ethnic uh, outsiders, Jesus has no problem preaching the gospel to them because, of course, he is ultimately he died for them as he died for us, right? And so that that is the governing uh, motif here. In this, in this text, is that there is no distinction. They are brothers because they have been, both been given the same promise, as we heard in Galatians. And, um, and that's what the Samaritan understands, that the man in the ditch is someone for whom Jesus died. And actually then is a kind of a picture of Jesus himself, right? Both as the Samaritan, but also as the man left for dead in the ditch, who was abandoned by all, right? Except for his father who raised him from the dead. So you can, uh, you can understand the text uh, figuratively in more than one way, all right? Maybe a little bit more background. Um, sometimes this is helpful. And so I have different resources for this, for Bible background and uh, treatment of prisoners. All right, so you hear about the armed men leaving the captives and the spoil and the men who were designated by Rose. They were clo- Oh, and he clothed all who were naked among them, dressed and gave them sandals, gave them food to drink and anointed them and let the feeble ones ride on donkeys. All right, so we, we understand um, how the captives were being treated there by inference. Assyrian annals and wall reliefs depict the harsh conditions of those who were deported from their own territory. The males were normally naked, often with hooks in their nose or lips, and some missing limbs. Others were carrying their worldly belongings with them. It appears that the Israelites had a similar policy. Well, yeah, they, well, they're under Assyrian captivity of a sort. Um, they're paying uh, tribute to um, Assyria. Um, who is Ahaz paying tribute to? Tiglath, Tiglath um, Pilaser, I think is his name. All right the second or the third, <laughs> one of the Assyrian kings. Uh, it appears that the Israelites had a similar policy, which was condemned by Oded, the prophet. Extenting, the extent of care and mercy described in the verses, therefore, is remarkable. Oh yeah, it's Tiglath-Pileser third, um, who Ahaz was paying um, tribute to. And that's recorded, it's not explicitly stated here, but it is recorded um, in the, the Assyrian uh, annals, or documents of, of their history. All right, finally, military um, difficulties, you see. Um, no, that's actually probably enough. We'll leave it there. All right, so uh, this is not uncommon treatment, and it seems quite, quite cruel, but then you see how remarkable it is that they are treated again as, uh, well, human, for that matter. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, of course. All right, let's sing our hymn for the week, Crown Him With Many Crowns.
There we go. A coronation hymn, huh? Well, today we have a commemoration, uh, but we're going a little bit long. Let's read a shorter um, devotion on that, which is, let's see, from the Treasury of Daily Prayer. Let me pull that up. On Hannah. All right. Hannah was the favored wife of Elkanah and the devout mother of the prophet Samuel. He she, she, excuse me, he was born to her after years of bitter barrenness, 1 Samuel 1 and fervent prayers for a son. After she weaned her son, Hannah expressed her gratitude by returning him for service in the house of the Lord at Shiloh. First Samuel 1 again. Her prayer, or psalm of thanksgiving, Samuel 2, begins with the words, My heart exalts in the Lord, my strength is exalted in the Lord. This song foreshadows the Magnificat, the song uh, of Mary centuries later, Luke 1. The name Hannah derives from the Hebrew word for grace. She is remembered and honored for joyfully having kept the vow she made before her son's birth and offering him for lifelong service 
to God. We pray. God the Father Almighty, maker of all things, you looked on the affliction of your barren servant Hannah, or Hannah, and did not forget her, but answered her prayers with the gift of a son. So hear our supplications and petitions and fill our emptiness, granting us trust in your provision, so that we, like Hannah, might render unto you all thankfulness and praise, and delight in the miraculous birth of your Son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Pray the Collect for the Week. Almighty and merciful God, by your gift alone, your faithful people render true and laudable service. Help us steadfastly to live in this life according to your promises, and finally attain your heavenly glory. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Heavenly Father, you hallow your name among us when your word is taught in its truth and purity, and we, and when we, as your dear children, also lead holy lives according to it. We give thanks to you for the gift of your word, for our parents, pastors' parents, and others who teach it, and for the holy lives of all your faithful Christians who live according to it. Forgive us for the many ways in which we profane your holy name among us by failing to teach your word in its truth and purity to pray for our pastors and teachers, or to lead holy lives. Protect us from false doctrine and evil living. Help all who are called to teach and preach your word to do so with faithfulness. And grant us to receive your word rightly, that our lives may be made holy by it. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We pray this day for faithfulness to the end, for the renewal of those who are withering in the faith or have fallen away, for pastors as they prepare to administer Christ's holy gifts, and for receptive hearts and minds on the Lord's day. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Pray this day in Thanksgiving with Nicholas, Brandon, and Pauline, all celebrating birthdays. We pray uh, with Suzanne and Linda, celebrating their baptism. Pray for the households of our church, especially today with Jessica, Randy, Ross, Neil, John and Linda, Timothy, and Amber. Pray for our catechumens. We pray for those ill receiving treatment or recovering, especially Pam, Joe, Kelsey, Dennis, Naomi, Christopher, Marcy, and Brad, Eileen, Ron, Doug, Bev, Donna, Jim, Pat and Wendell, Darlene, and District President Willie. Pray for our homebound, Marcy, Marion, Dan, Paul, Dolores, Merlin, and Pauline. Pray for the missions and mercy work of the church, especially that of the Federowitz families. We pray for the Tupper family, that they be provided for in their need. And we continue to pray for our students and teachers who have returned to class. For all this, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger. And I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings in life may please you, For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul, and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. The grace of of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. All right, that's the Congregation of Prayer for today, Saturday, September 2nd, 2023. Uh, Good to have you with us here, whether live or watching later or listening uh, via podcast um, or via our call-in service, right? Uh, many ways uh, to participate in this so that each day you're instructed in God's word and prepared richly um, to do what the Lord would have you do this day. All right. I uh, hope to see you in the morning at 9 a.m. for 
divine service. Uh, hopefully it won't be too hot. Uh, we do have a brief voters meeting after divine service. Um, one or two agenda items there. And uh, I intend to have Bible study, although, uh, you know, we might call an audible if it seems too miserable. Uh, maybe we won't, but uh, why not, right? I know some of you need to leave. You've got uh, holiday plans, so be it. Um, but we'll study God's word uh, and you'll just miss out. All right. So God be with you all. Keep you safe. And we'll see you again tomorrow for divine service. We thank you for listening to this podcast from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church Sermon Center in Random Lake, Wisconsin. If this podcast is of benefit to you, please consider supporting the work of St. John by visiting stjohnrandomlake.org, that's stjohnrandomlake.org, slash support, and give today.